Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The name Sambo has a long, painful history behind it. The book, Little Black Sambo, features caricatures of black people and harmful stereotypes in its illustrations. So when two business owners decided to use the name for their restaurant, it didn't go over so well. Many believe that the restaurant's racist history eventually shut them down, but did it? Far more went on behind the scenes at Sambo's, illegal kickbacks, pyramid schemes, all of it making Sambo's a perfect storm of litigation when they finally closed. Today, we're going to untangle Sambo's controversy and uncover what made them shut their doors of over 1,000 restaurant locations. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Prism of the Past. We're going to discuss the divisive history of Sambo's restaurant and the racial stereotypes that it perpetuated throughout the late 1950s and into the early 1980s. As a brief content warning, we will be talking about racism and harmful stereotypes. So if that's not something that you're in the headspace to hear right now, then that's your heads up that this is not the topic for you. With that being said, let's get into it. Helen Bannerman wrote and illustrated the story of Little Black Sambo as a gift for her children. The story takes place in India, a place where Helen, the wife of an Indian medical service officer frequented. It was published in 1899 in England, then reprinted in the US the following year. The book depicts a young boy, Sambo, surrendering his clothing and umbrella to tigers to avoid being eaten. The tigers grow jealous of each other's new clothing and chase each other around a tree until they turn into melted butter. Sambo gets his clothes back and his mother uses the butter to cook pancakes. His father who collects the butter is called Black Jumbo and his mother, Black Mumbo. Just like their son, Sambo's parents are often drawn in bulging eyes, large lips, unkempt hair, broad noses, and other characteristics used to stereotype black people. Though the plot itself may be unoffensive and nonsensical, the name Sambo and the illustrations used to depict him have long since been used to perpetuate negative archetypes. Though the original story took place in India, the setting often changed to Africa or the American South, and the illustrations became more and more offensive each time it was reprinted. Sambo became a stereotypical pick a ninny character, an offensive term for a racial caricature of a black child. According to historian Stanley Elkins, Sambo, the typical plantation slave, was docile but irresponsible, loyal but lazy, humble but chronically given to lying and stealing. His behavior was full of infantile silliness and his talk inflated with childish exaggeration. As an education specialist puts it, Sambo, the archetype, was always the butt of the jokes. Sambo played into the culture of caricaturing black children heavily. The only difference being that Sambo wore nice clothes. Well, at least until he lost them to tigers, that is. The first well-known caricatured child was known as Topsy, a poorly dressed, disreputable, and neglected slave girl featured in Uncle Tom's cabin. She was seen as corrupted by slavery, and when asked how she was made, Topsy says she doesn't know who God or her mother is and answers, quote, I suspect I growed, don't think nobody never made me. Regardless of the intentions behind Uncle Tom's Cabin, Topsy's sloppy physical appearance and poor language skills became comic props. Even within the book, Topsy is described as heathenish and wooly braided hair sticking out in all directions and an odd goblin-like appearance. 
Like Uncle Tom's Cabin, the story of Little Black Sambo has been analyzed at length over the years, with some sources arguing that it played into the sexualization of young black characters at the time. Exposed genitalia and buttocks were disturbingly common. Robin Bernstein in his book, Racial Innocence, wrote that black girls were depicted as, quote, antebellum black girls, like black women, were assumed to be ineligible for sexual purity. The sale of enslaved prepubescent girls calculated their sexuality, or at the very least, their anticipated fertility into their pricing. In one 1938 version of the book, Sambo was intentionally feminized by the standards of that time, given rosy cheeks, wide eyes, and pouty lips, appearing gender indeterminate. The tactic was used to render black boys and men non-threatening. The book Racial Innocence also states that the unrestrained violence against black children was especially common. Whether it was advertisements, stage plays, or film, African-American children were beaten, scalded, attacked by animals, neglected, and even dismembered. As Bernstein states, the libel that black youth cannot feel pain appears with horrifying vividness in Booth Tarkington's Penrod, which was the seventh best-selling novel of 1914. Though the protagonist was a white boy, the other two characters in the novel, Herman and Vermin, are characterized black children. Not only is portraying black children as unable to feel pain a lie, but it desensitizes white readers to African-American pain too. While Sambo is usually a child, in the 1908 version, he was depicted as a menacing and grotesque adult. In this version of the story, Sambo was an aggressive young man with a primitive nature. It was only through deception, not wit, that Sambo recovered his European style clothing. No matter which version of the story you look at, Little Black Sambo has been used to caricaturize black people. Washington University in St. Louis points out, if Bannerman truly wished to draw an Indian child, she could have. And white characters from other books she'd written like Pat and the Spider and Little White Squibba were realistic and non-characterized. Instead, Sambo was crudely drawn and played off obviously harmful stereotypes. Still, the story took off and was considered a hit for the time. Little Black Sambo appeared on reading lists and was taught in classrooms, despite the controversy surrounding it. In the 1930s, Langston Hughes and American librarians suggested that the name Sambo had pejorative connotations and objected to the story's illustrations, but that didn't stop the New York Public Library's librarian, Augusta Baker, from recommending it almost two decades later in 1949. According to her, there was a lack of material for young children of color, hence why she included it in her own work, books about life for children. Baker withdrew her recommendation a decade later, but for those who had to sit through the book being taught in their classrooms, the damage had already been done. One Nebraskan man recalls, I sat through Little Black Sambo, and since I was the only black face in the room, I became Little Black Sambo. If my parents had taught me bad names to call the little cracker kids, and I use that term on purpose to try and get a message across to you, you don't like it. Well, how do you think we feel when an adult is going to take our child and that adult gives these little white kids bad names to call him? Another man in Canada, Daniel Braithwaite, recalled having white children grab his neck and rub their hands in his hair saying, hello, DeSambo, when he was young. The story of Little Black Sambo took on new forms, becoming a short animated film in 1935. When the film was later shown at a school fundraiser in 1955, Braithwaite's son, Paul, began facing similar taunts. Braithwaite sent a letter to the Toronto Board of Education objecting to the movie and book being present in schools. The board questioned whether or not it should be banned. Ultimately, they told Braithwaite that the story had such a wide appeal for children and that it, quote, cannot be said to be discriminatory in that it is a children's fantasy which portrays a little boy who has a great adventure in the jungle from which he emerges successfully, end quote. 
Racial intolerance in Toronto was dismissed as communist rabble-rousing, and Braithwaite was told by multiple organizations to forget the matter. According to Braithwaite himself, the pastor of the African Methodist Episcopal Church told him to go home and forget he was black. Although schools eventually removed the book thanks to Braithwaite's persistence, it wasn't a total victory. Real backlash ensued, and those who aimed to defend the book said that the text itself wasn't offensive in the slightest. As Julia Kirkwood, a young black student at the time argued, white people have no right to comment on a black person's reaction or sensitivity to racism. They haven't experienced what it's like to be ridiculed because of your skin color. I wonder how many white children have ever left a classroom after reading or having this book read to them to be greeted by the cries of their classmates, hey, black Sambo, where are your tigers? Or Sambo, what are you having for lunch? Pancakes? I doubt if you could name one white child this has happened to, but I am sure that practically every child who attended public school in Toronto or any school in Canada has had this experience, she said. Though this happened in Toronto, it sparked debate about the story of Little Black Sambo throughout the entirety of North America and even across the world. On an interesting note, Sambo was a hit overseas when it was published in Japan in 1953. Eventually, Japanese booksellers agreed to remove Little Black Sambo from shelves in the wake of the civil rights movement, but it's reappeared in various forms there too. One of their 1997 renditions of the story didn't feature Sambo as a human at all, but a black dog instead. Then again, in 2005, a small publisher in Tokyo reissued it under the title Chibikuro Sambo, keeping the story exactly the same. While the book did face backlash, the reprint sold almost 100,000 copies in the first two months since its release. Kazuo Mori, an educational psychologist from Nagano, said that many Japanese were surprised to learn Little Black Sambo had racist overtones in the first place. It never occurred to us. It was just a story, he said, adding that many Japanese people, quote, have no experience in dealing with black people. Where would we get it from? There have been multiple attempts to bring the story back in the US too, like in 2003, when Handprint Books of Brooklyn, New York republished Little Black Sambo. Christopher Bing, who illustrated this version, stated that when Bannerman chose the name Sambo, it wasn't meant to be derogatory. However, given Bannerman's illustration, separating the name Sambo from its negative stereotypes is not easy. Christopher Bing, a white man, has stated that he would, quote, love for the black community to be able to take this image and this original story and make it into a positive. The names of Sambo's parents, Black Mumbo and Black Jumbo, he argues were chosen by Bannerman by chance. Author Julius Lester, a professor at the University of Amherst disagrees. Bannerman was reflecting her time and the fact that she was hurting black people never entered her mind, which doesn't let her off the hook, Lester states. Dr. Alvin F. Poussant of Harvard agrees that separating the title from the history of the name Sambo and what it represents isn't possible. I don't see how I can get past the title and what it means, he says. I would like to be like him trying to do little black darky as saying, as long as I fix up the character so he doesn't look like a darky on the plantation, it's okay. If you say Sambo, it's not as bad as N-word, but it's certainly as bad as darky or to some extent How can you write a book whose central character has a name that you would not call a black person? End quote. Despite the criticism, Little Black Sambo was released again as a little golden book called The Boy and the Tigers in 2004. It features an Indian boy with the name Rajani and Eastern clothing. The book seems to have gotten far less criticism, successfully separating itself from Little Black Sambo as much as possible. Still, Given that, in Sanskrit, the name actually translates to the dark one, so the story hasn't seemingly left behind as much of its roots as one would hope. Unfortunately, those racist stereotypes were and are still very much alive today. Despite this complicated controversial history and all the discussions surrounding it in the 50s, 
two white men thought Sambo's would be a perfect name for a restaurant. Sam Battistone Sr. and Newell Bonnet wanted a catchy familiar name for their Santa Barbara restaurant in 1957. They combined the first three letter of Battistone's first name, Sam, with the first two letters of Newell's last name, Bo, to create Sambo. Sambo's offered 21 different pancake varieties and cheap bottomless cups of coffee to attract customers. They were busy within no time at all and created a bright warm atmosphere for the restaurant right on the ocean, adorning the walls and paintings from the story. Sambo's denied naming the restaurant after Little Black Sambo's character in public forums, but they opened in towns that seemed to embrace racist messaging. For example, Sambo's opened in Medford, Eugene, and Salem, Oregon, as well as Eureka, California, all of which were sundown towns. Another location, Yukia, California, had a significant KKK presence. Black people were so unwelcome in Medford in particular that when the US Weather Bureau appointed a black meteorologist there, his family was intimidated into leaving town after the locos burned a cross on their lawn. As the book Burgers in Blackface, which discusses anti-black restaurants put it, it therefore speaks volumes that Sambo's executives chose to open a restaurant brand that carried a racial epithet as its name in a town that instilled racial terror in black people. Perhaps expectedly, given the places Sambo's chose to open, they found success. In 1966, they opened their 53rd restaurant and were active in five states. Each one sold Sambo and Tiger dolls at their cashier stands and children were given Sambo masks when they left a restaurant. In 1967, the founders became co-chairmen and oversaw the opening of additional outlets while Battistone Jr. was elected president. As they continued to grow and expand, Sambo's made newspaper announcements insisting that their name was a contraction of the founders' names, despite never having made those announcements in their early years. Controversies and questions about their namesake continued, but Sambo's had supporters too. Russell Kirk, a commentator in the Los Angeles Times, called the pushback against Little Black Sambo's story censorship and argued that, quote, the story of triumph was likely to persuade white children to like black children. In 1975 alone, Sambo's opened 125 new restaurants, even though civil rights leaders and town councils were objecting to the name more and more frequently. In 1977, Reston, Virginia called for a name change and Sam Battistone Jr. responded by stating there was no ground for changing it. The vice president and general counsel of Sambo's, Bruce Anticoni also added, we've operated these family restaurants for 20 years on a 24 hour basis and it's been Sambo's the whole 20 years. The name has been accepted across the country. If the name had been accepted by everyone across the country, then multiple towns wouldn't have been requesting name changes, but I digress. Bruce insisted that they had 850 restaurants across the country and 845 of them were under the name Sambo's. A few took on names like No Place Like Sam's and Jolly Tiger, but they wanted to keep their legal name to be Sambo's. In 1978, one spokesman for the company, David Severson claimed, quote, we are aware that some blacks find our name insensitive, but we have a legal right to retain the name and plan to do so, end quote. Sambo's didn't just attract customers though, but investors too. In 1969, the same year that they served enough coffee each day to float a 45-foot yacht, Sambo's made a public stock offering. Around this time, their name finally began catching up with them and new towns where they intended to open wanted explanations. It might seem like stubbornness was guaranteed to get them in trouble, but when Sambo's began to falter on Wall Street, it wasn't because of their name. The Securities and Exchange Commission began investigating Sambo's in 1977 because of a questionable incentive program the company had set up for their managers known as Fraction of the Action. Under this program, managers received salaries of over $9,000 per year and paid $20,000 for a 20% share of their profits. They could also buy shares in other restaurants, making it possible for some managers to earn quite a bit of money through profit alone. That is, 
so long as the chain was always expanding. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it should, as Sambos was running this program like a pyramid scheme. Corporate treated the 20,000 payment as income rather than a deposit, and it was the abrupt end of the program that market analysis saw of their fatal error. Managers had no reason to work long hours without days off because they had no stake in the company anymore. Sambos had to buy back their shares, straining their liquidity, and shareholders began revolting. One former manager, Charles P. Catton from Portland, Oregon, sued Sambos for the fraudulent pyramid scheme program and won. He was awarded $925,000 in damages. Sambos settled at least 10 more cases out of court too. By 1979, Sam Battistone Jr. was replaced as president and CEO, and the company was hemorrhaging money due to all the litigation. One New York Times article stated that all their earnings fell from $6.8 million to just 3.1, a loss of more than 50%. The fraction of the action program may have been what started their money troubles, but it was their battles within the court of public opinion that seemed to keep them from making a comeback. Sambo's biographer framed it this way as, quote, as if it didn't have enough troubles, Sambo's name in New England and some Midwestern states were repeatedly challenged now by NAACP, civil rights groups, and indignant consumers. Suddenly people were saying that Sambo's, once hailed as a great name, was a poor choice. Groups decided they didn't like the connotation of the name from the children's story, Little Black Sambo. Never mind that Sambo's hired a much higher percentage of blacks than other companies and restaurant firms. Never mind that the name was derived from a combination of the two founders, Sam Sr. and Bonnet. Sambo's was automatically guilty of discrimination in the minds of many under the thinking of that era." End quote. Again, I feel it necessary to point out that no, Sambo's was not always hailed as a great name and the NAACP protested their restaurant as early as 1961, only four years after the very first Sambo's opened. Implying that black people and activists just suddenly started hating this restaurant is inaccurate at best. Still, Sambo's held their ground. In Reading, a suburb northeast of Boston, Sambo's was denied a victuller's license due to their offensive name. And that license is a license to conduct a restaurant or an alcohol license, depending on how it's defined. Despite having invested $800,000 in the restaurant, they stubbornly refused to change it, allowing the restaurant to lose money each day it remained closed and sued the selectmen instead. In Ithaca, New York, the controversy surrounding Sambo's name arose in the newspaper opinion pages. While some Ithaca residents like Clarice B. Abbott argued that the restaurant's challenges were inflammatory race baiting concocted by ultra liberals, others claimed that the word Sambo is equivalent to the N-word and Sambos should be ashamed of themselves. Multiple communities called for Sambos to rename themselves as they were trying to build towns that people felt welcome in. But even when these towns were successful, Sambos would change their name after the fact. And that's exactly what happened in 1980 when Sambo's in the town of Ann Arbor, Michigan had to take their arguments over the Sambo name to court. When the restaurant opened there in 1971, they agreed to do business as Jelly Tiger instead. However, years later, they requested a permit to become Sambo's instead. The permits were initially granted, but revoked once Sambo's signs were erected, citing the previous agreement. Sambo's refused to take the signs down. Ann Arbor threatened to sue and Sambo's beat them to it and filed suit seeking declaratory and injunctive relief for violations of its constitutional rights. The judge did rule in favor of Sambo's, but things were trickier in appeals court when it was pointed out that the Supreme Court didn't grant commercial speech protection until 1976, after the restaurant opened in Ann Arbor. Technically, since Sambo's name was a valuable property interest, they were allowed to keep it. And since the city didn't provide any evidence about the harm Sambo's had done to the community, the court ruled in favor of Sambo's restaurant. In other states, things played out quite differently. In March, 1981, a state agency required Sambo's to change the name of four locations in Rhode Island on the grounds of racial discrimination. 
the Human Rights Commission found that in a survey of 238 people, 89% of whom were black, 214 said they wouldn't patronize Sambo's because of the name. The survey didn't specify if the 24 people that would attend were white or black. Around the time Sambo's changed, almost 20% of the restaurants in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire to no place like Sam's, claiming it was to draw attention to a new menu, not because of the lawsuits. Though this was relatively minor, it's also worth noting that around the time in 1981, Sambo's had to take down one of their television commercials because it infringed on a copyrighted Dr. Pepper advertising campaign. The ad showed elderly dancers singing, featuring the line, special prices, don't you want to be a senior too? Which a judge ruled was copying the 1980 Dr. Pepper campaign that read, Dr. Pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? As minor as it may have been compared to the other courtroom battles, to say that Sambo's was buried in legal battles would be an understatement. And before we continue on to one of their more interesting and largest lawsuits, we're gonna take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. There are probably thousands of gift guides out there for the holiday season. Gifts for moms, gifts for guys, gifts for your neighbor's cousin's dog. You could study all those gift guides and shop at 10,000 different places, or you can start your shopping at Raycon and get a gift everyone will use, Raycon wireless earbuds. Now, recently Raycon redid their packaging for their everyday E25s. And so I now have a white pair of them because I wanted some variety because I have a black pair. So now I wanted a white pair. And let me tell you, the differences are actually really incredible. The touch buttons on the side of the ear pad are much more fluid. It's easier to change between your base settings. And this is really cool. There's a little hook or it's more like it's a little loop and you can loop through a string or thread or whatever you need and essentially carry them on your keychain so that the case is literally going everywhere with you and they don't get lost or misplaced anymore. I think that's really cool. I know it's a small detail that they changed, but I am absolutely obsessed. So the holidays are coming up faster than you think. And now is the time to knock out that gift list and avoid the last minute shipping scramble, especially because right now my listeners will receive 15% off site-wide when you use code holiday at buyraycon.com prism. Go to buyraycon.com prism and use code holiday to get up to 15% off your entire Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com prism. And it is now time for the sponsor that brings you dolphin legs. Throughout the panini, I have been obviously wearing sweatpants and being comfy. I'm sure most of us have been doing that. But honestly, I'm starting to put on, you know, some of the cute like mini skirts and do like the tights and the boots and, you know, try and look a little fashionable for the season. And I'm making sure that my dolphin legs underneath stay perfectly dolphiny smooth so that I don't have my weird little fucking ass leg hairs popping up through the tights and making it look like I am a Chewbacca underneath, which it's not fitting the vibe, honestly, right? Like I'm trying to wear a little beret, you know, like a beret and Chewbacca legs, they might go together, but they also might not. And I don't want to find out. I don't want to be the test subject. So in comes the Athena kit. With their razor kit, it's $9 and it comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage and your choice of handle color. I have the pink one right now, love it. And by the way, for that magnetic hook, it's really like this little circle. It's got a little 3M sticker on the back and you just boop, stick it there and your um, shaver is magnetic and it just mounts itself to that. It is super easy. So show your skin you care with Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use code PRISM. That's athenaclub.com with promo code PRISM for 20% off. Get yourself some dolphin legs this holiday season.
The litigation over the name, copyright, and the incentive program was damaging enough, but one of Sambo's largest lawsuits was actually with itself. Former company executives were sued by Sambo's for mail and wire fraud, as well as falsifying cattle sales records involving a kickback scheme. A kickback scheme is, as Investopedia puts it, an illegal payment intended as compensation for preferential treatment or any other type of improper services received. Although the Santa Cruz Centennial didn't get into the details during their 1981 reporting on the case, they laid out the financial situation and it looked grim. At their absolute peak before any shutdowns began, Sambo's operated 1,114 restaurants in 47 states. In 1979, they reported losses of $77.8 million in 1980, 11.6 million, and in the first three quarters of 1981, $29 million. In October, 1981, they failed to pay the first installment on a $100 million restructured loan. And as VP Arthur Dowd put it, they were giving serious consideration to declaring bankruptcy. In that month alone, in November, 1981, 447 of their 1,114 restaurants were closed. And soon after Denny's, another popular restaurant chain began buying up their stores. The ironic thing in all of this is that Denny's themselves also had a history of racial discrimination. Back in the 1990s, they faced class action lawsuits for their abysmal treatment of black customers. Their first discrimination suit was in 1999 when 17-year-old African-American Christina Ridgway and her classmates went to a Denny's in San Jose. She was asked to pay a cover charge and her Caucasian classmates were served first. Ridgway later told the New York Times, I was very upset. Both my parents are from the South and they had to grow up with this kind of thing. And they would always tell me that I wouldn't have to deal with stuff like this. Then in 1993, another Denny's refused to serve a group of young African-American students unless they paid in advance. In 1994, Asian-American students at Syracuse University faced similar discrimination. They complained to their waitress when white customers were served ahead of them, only to be escorted out. Horrifyingly, a mob of white customers were outside the restaurant waiting for them to beat and insult the students. The New York Times published a story in 1994 remarking that even a black federal judge had been treated horribly at a Denny's in California. He and his wife had to wait over an hour while white teenagers taunted them and called them the N-word. Hell, President Clinton's black secret service agents were refused a table in another case, though their white colleagues were seated and served. There aren't just hundreds of cases like this, but thousands. Not only was this a pattern of behavior, but a disgusting mindset within the company itself. We believe that there was at the company an attitude that went into the management level, but we don't know exactly how high, said John Relman, a lawyer for the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. This attitude at the company, at the management level and working its way down, had the effect of causing discriminatory attitudes going down to the lowest levels of the company. Flagstar, Denny's parent company, had to pay a total of over $50 million to settle the suits. Considering they had revenues of $1.53 billion in 1993, it clearly didn't hurt them much. Unfortunately, Jerome Richardson, the chief executive and chairman of Flagstar, chalked these lawsuits up to negative restaurant experiences. We serve 1 million customers a day. It would be naive on my part to say that customers are always satisfied, he states. A year after the lawsuits were settled, Jerome Richardson stepped down and Denny's cracked down on discrimination at their restaurants. Sambo's and Denny's certainly aren't the only two restaurants guilty of this. Two establishments called Coon Chicken Inn and Mammy's Cupboard also operated in the mid 1950s and are featured within the Burgers and Blackface book. It's upsetting to think that some of the same restaurants that were once Sambo's later became Denny's only to potentially carry on the practice of discrimination in other forms. As for Sambo's, by 1984, the original Sambo's in Santa Barbara was the only one that remained. In spite of all the controversy and all the lawsuits, Sambo's kept its original name. Chad Stevens, Battistone's grandson, took over the ownership and management and in 1998 even announced plans to make Sambo's a chain again. 
Historian Robin Kelly argued against this, saying that Sambos will always be linked to a caricature of black men. Stevens dismissed the concerns about the Sambo name and said that the 60s and 70s was a very sensitive time and quote, if we get complaints about the name in the future, that's something we'll think about and deal with. Stevens used the exact arguments we saw earlier, stating Sambo's is a story about an Indian boy who lost his clothing to tigers and it was never meant to be negative. The restaurant wanted to use the name in a positive way. Continuing to use the name was about preserving a legacy. Stevens was quoted as telling one critic that the vice president of Nigeria at the time was named Sambo, insinuating that since the VP wasn't asked to change his name, the restaurant shouldn't change theirs. He also claimed the word Sambo is a type of wrestling based on judo. However, in 2020, Chad Stevens changed his tune. A petition with nearly 3000 signatures called for a name change and this time Chad was more responsive. On June 4th, Chad claimed, our family has looked into our hearts and realized that we must be sensitive when others whom we respect make a strong appeal. So today we stand in solidarity with those seeking change and doing our part as best we can. Chad said no one had ever come to him before with open dialogue about the problematic name and stated that he had faced death threats and property damage to the restaurant. Though Chad didn't seem open to dialogue decades earlier when presented with one, at least the name is finally gone for good. Sambo's restaurant is now known as Chad's Cafe and they remain open in Santa Barbara to this day. While we can't know for sure how the name Sambo's was chosen, throughout the restaurant's early years, it profited off racial caricatures. It's important to remember the long and painful history of Sambo's for what it was, not as a quote, sensitive time, but nearly three decades, entire black people had to contend with the existence of a hugely successful restaurant chain that unapologetically depicted them in harmful ways. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure to subscribe and also check out our YouTube channel if you wanna see the visual component to all of these episodes. Make sure to leave us a positive review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can also be recommended this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you learned something new and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.